Good morning, everyone. It's great to see everybody. Thank you for joining us as we continue our Jericho Walls. I pray you appreciated the worship there and just uh, focusing for a minute on God. I know you desire me to be holy for you are holy. And uh, holiness is something that a believer and a child of God should always be pursuing. And so much of holiness comes down to asking God to create in us a clean heart. Well, today, as we continue our Jericho series, keep in mind we've been knocking a lot of walls down this summer, and they're walls that sometimes we've put up ourselves, uh, but sometimes there's walls that others even have put up against us, and, and it's one of our jobs as believers to take the first step and to take some of these walls out. We've tackled the wall of fear. We've pushed through the wall of generational sin. We've talked about the wall of bondage and, uh, and feeling trapped. And we've even talked about the wall of disregard. Well, now we get back into our series here. We're in Joshua chapter five, and it's a series on courageousness for it takes courage to go through some of these walls. We much, oftentimes we are tempted to just kind of say, oh, that wall's fine there, but it's not fine when God's calling us to knock it over. I'm reminded of a story I read. Um, it's not original to me, but a, a story that, a short story that's penned of an illustration of a little boy who had just gotten a slingshot. Now, this is years ago, these were a little bit more popular. I think if you get a slingshot now, it's probably a bad toy for a boy to get in a family, especially if there's sisters involved. Or, or anything like that, right? Or, or dad, if you want to get taken out while watching the Phillies game with a slingshot, I don't know if this is the best thing you want to, want to buy. But this little boy got a slingshot, went to grandma's house, and was using it on her farm. And like any little boy, um, he got a little bit sick of stationary targets and saw grandma's pet duck over by her pond. He thought he'd buzz a few by the tower but he hit her duck. And as the story goes, uh, the, duck, the duck died. He knew this was a bad thing, so he went and he got the duck's body and he buried it and hid it. And he thought he was good until he saw his sister Sally watching him. And like any good sister, she used this for blackmail. Dinner came that night and they were eating around the dinner table and grandma had made the food and she got a special place at the table for Johnny and he sat there and ate his favorite meal and she said, okay, now you need you two to do the dishes. And Sally said, Johnny will do the dishes tonight. And she said, remember the duck. And he did the dishes. The next day came and grandma got things for Johnny like she typically would. She took care of Johnny and she said, hey guys, before you go to bed tonight, I need you to clean up your rooms. And Sally said, Johnny will clean up the whole upstairs. He wants to. Remember the duck. And this went on and on and on. Well, until one day, after a weekend of being told to do everything basically by Sally, he breaks down with grandma. Oh, have you ever seen this? It's so, it's heartbreaking grandmas, right? When you see the grandchildren just weeping. Oh, what? I killed your duck with my slingshot. I'm so sorry. And grandma said, I know. I was watching out the window when you did it. And then she said something that made me tell this story to you. 
She said this. When the boy's looking at her like, why would you not treat me differently? Because you've been treating me great. Why would you not have told me you saw it? She goes, I forgave you. I was just wondering how long you would be enslaved to Sally. I was wondering how long you would allow Sally to make a slave of you. It's an interesting line. I got thinking about that line. He had been forgiven by grandma and didn't even realize it or was certainly not operating that way. When he confessed what he'd done, his mom said, I, I forgive you. His grandma said, I forgive you. But, but her real question for him, and the reason she was watching is she wanted to see how long. So I put this up. I wondered how long you would let shame make a slave of you. Remember the duck. You know, in a room this size, there may be people who are just still investigating the truth of scripture. You're still wondering about this Bible somebody told you about. You're thinking about it. You've heard some things. Maybe you're really standoffish with it, wherever you're at. But there's those of us in the room who've accepted Jesus Christ with as their savior. They've casted their lot with Jesus and they follow him wholeheartedly. They're a child of God. Yet still, I wonder if sometimes Jesus says, who has offered us forgiveness at the moment of salvation. I wonder how many times he would say to us, I was just wondering how long you would let shame make a slave of you. I've forgiven you. I'm just wondering how long you're gonna allow shame to make a slave of you. You know, in the neighborhoods across our countries and in our own local neighborhood, I am sure there's homes filled with people living with tremendous shame over things they've done in the past. And, and when the Bible points out something that might be something you shouldn't do, the reaction is so emotional because there is shame there. But shame is a terrible thing to live with. It, it, it cripples you. And we live in a time where people leverage shame for their side of the opinion. And that's why you read the comments, shame on people who, shame on them who did that. That's pitiful, that's disgusting, what a joke. That's all shame language. And if you define yourself by what other people say and think about you, you're gonna really struggle in 2022. But if you're defined by Jesus, then it really doesn't matter what people say about you because he defines you. So if I've got shame, I want to make sure I get right with my heavenly father because I'm going to be shamed by other people for what I believe, what I think, what I follow, what I do, no matter what you do. But you know what? Some of you, you don't need anybody to shame you. You do it to yourself all the time. In fact, if there was a microphone in your head, you're really mean to yourself. You're really hard on yourself. You're really cruel to yourself. In fact, you don't need anybody to tell you what a jerk you are. You tell yourself that every night. You don't need anybody to tell you how lazy you are. You tell yourself that every night. You don't need to have anybody tell you how unworthy you are. You tell yourself that every night. 
wouldn't it be nice to get out from that? What if Jesus is looking at you, child of God, going, I just wondered how long you were gonna let shame make a slave of you. For that's what shame wants to do. You're still at this point in this stage of life, you're still here, you might say in your head. If other people knew what you've done, you might say in your head. How could you still do that? You might say in your head. You might have came in today and I said, we're gonna knock down a wall and you weren't sure which wall, but you know the wall today is the wall of shame. And how many of us would love to knock this wall down? Because this wall has symptoms like isolation, discouragement, depression, anger, fits of rage. The wall of shame exposes itself in symptoms. But child of God, we're called to so much more than shame. And many of you may have grown up in a culture of shame. Maybe you grew up in a church that leveraged shame to get people to do what, I can't believe a good Christian would wear that. And shame has been a part of your life. How do I break through this wall when I'm constantly condemning myself? How do I break through this wall when I'm constantly beating myself up? How can I break through this wall when I'm continually evaluating what the comments of other people will be? It's a very stressful, enslaving life to live. And we're all susceptible to it. So therefore, I think the wall of shame will be a great wall to break through today in God's power, amen? Oh, this is gonna get rough for a little bit today, but there's a lot of grace at the end, okay? At least you're happy. All right, let's pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to hear your truth. It's good to know you love us. And it's good to know we have a place where we can take a respite from the difficulties of this world and open your word and hear only from you. And so Lord, set aside our thoughts for yours. Renew our minds. And Lord, would you remove this place from distraction so that we might focus on what you have for us. And we'll pray this. And all God's people said... Amen. Joshua chapter five is our text today. Let's remember where we were in Joshua chapter four. The Israelites obeyed. They were the generation that obeyed. They went towards the river and crossed the Jordan River. God had told Joshua, tell the priest to get the Ark of the Covenant and move out and stand in the water and stand firm. And the waters dried up and over a million some Israelites crossed the Jordan River. Anybody been out to the Delaware River at flood stage? Imagine it drying up and people walking across to the tune of a million people. I mean, you can't even fathom this. Now, if you went to the Jordan River, it only runs about 20% of what it ran at that time, scholars say, because of the different aspects of, that has been bought in for water management. But at that time period, the Jordan was overflowing its banks and God dried it up and they walked across and they're in the promised land. 40 years earlier, they came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and sent 12 spies into the promised land and decided to listen to the two spies who said, too scary. Excuse me, the 10 spies who said, too scary. And the two spies who said, let's do it. And they didn't follow. Do you remember one of the names of those two spies? Joshua. And here we are, Joshua is, imagine Joshua crossing. Oh, 
we're going into the promised land. The water's dry. I mean, imagine this victory. Imagine how you're feeling about God at this moment. You've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and you're crossing over and you're gonna touch into the promised land, the great land of the Abrahamic covenant. It's right in front of you. They get across. What happens? Well, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel. Until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Their hearts melted. They were terrified. Have you ever been terrified? Back in college, I had a friend who worked at a church in cleaning, and he would clean really late at night. Yeah, like when the dead deacons walk around in the basements and stuff. (laughs) It's a joke if you're newer to church. That was a joke. Do you know what a couple of the guys did? They talked to one of the staff members, got the keys of the church, and they snuck in on their buddy and hid downstairs in the basement while he was vacuuming and grabbed his ankle in the middle of the night. His heart melted. I think he actually needed some work at the hospital after it. Can you imagine? That's, that's wrong, right? That's wrong. Do any of you like to scare people? You're evil. That's mean. It's so fun, isn't it, though, as a dad? Is it not so fun? Until they get you back, until they get back. They're terrified. The emotion of this is, well, at least those Israelites who have this God who parted the Red Sea, at least they're on the other side of the Jordan. So we see these armies coming. We see the people coming, these millions of people walking across the desert towards the promised land. They know of all this prophecy that's out there. Remember Rahab? Oh, we all know. We all know about your God. And so Jericho's, I'm sure, watching this, and they go, well, at least they're on the other side of the Jordan, and then whoosh, it dries, and they come across. Their hearts melted because God is coming for his enemies, and he's using his people. Now, these are God's people, God's Israelites, and they're being called on conquest. Very different than what we deal with now as New Testament believers, but we go back into these halls of history and study how God worked with his people very specifically to gain some insight into who God is. And we see a God who parts the seas and melts his enemies' hearts. And so, if you're a military strategist, what are you thinking? Charge, right? I mean, they're terrified. They're hiding. Oh my goodness, look at this. Oh my word, look at the waters. They're, 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 their hearts are terrified. Here they come. I mean, the emotion might be the morning of 9-11. Maybe some of you felt like a terror inside of you. Maybe you've been in a situation where you felt terror. You felt your life was threatened. This is where they're all at emotionally. And the Israelites, they got them like that. And they're standing in the promised land. And God says, at that time, he says to Joshua, I want you to do this. Make flint knives. Yeah, make flint knives. And and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. What? No, no, charge. No, I want you to make flint knives and I want you to circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. You want us to be circumcised? Now, Now, normally I'm a prop guy. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. So, you notice the guys are laughing louder than the women? 
Yeah, yeah, normally I'm a prop guy. We're not going to do that today. We're not going to do that today. And we are a church of growing people of all ages to a mature faith in Jesus Christ. And so um, I know I have children in the room too, and I'm making life real hard on the parents. But um, we got to talk about what scripture says. This is why when you walk expositorily through a book, you're going to have Joshua 5. You wouldn't really cry, pick this one out for church. Um, Circumcise. All right, let's do it this way. Cutting away of the foreskin of a male's private part was part of the Mosaic law. And it was to be done as an act of obedience, a token of uniqueness, and a reminder of whose side you're on. It was distinct to the Israelites. They were often made fun of it for it at times. It was a clear Clear cutting away of the flesh, which meant there was shedding of blood. And God's saying, I want you to circumcise the people. Now, Joshua, who had been with the previous generation, probably would have been, but here, the people that had been wandering in the wilderness, I guess they hadn't been circumcised, which makes us go, why hadn't they? This is part of the Israelites' system of following the law. And God says, hold it right there. No, no, charge, no, no. We wanna get them. No, no, I want you to get, get right. And, and so the text tells us why God was so adamant about this. It's this. So Joshua made flint lives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeath Araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. So the 40 years of wandering, those males died. And though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to them, their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. There's three reasons. It seems that God demanded circumcision at this moment before they would attack Jericho. And the first one, make no mistake, is the law. The law, the Mosaic law demanded it. They were given the law as a schoolmaster, if you will, to show them what wrong behavior was. And part of the law was to be obeyed in order for them to see victory. And one of those obediences was to do a ritual that was basically the equivalent of a token or a symbol that you are with God's side. It was private. It was a cutting away of the flesh. It left a man vulnerable. It stopped them from having intimacy for a time. It identified them. It purified them for it had medicinal aspects to it, but it was a sign of the covenant and it was a constant reminder. They were told to not, to not sleep with people from other cultures that they'd be tempted to in that promised land. 
The culture would push on them and press on them and they'd be tempted to intermingle and God told them not to do that, to stay distinct. And can you imagine that every time a man would do that, he'd be reminded by what he saw and so would the woman know that this is an Israelite. See, there was a lot more to this than what you might even think. The law demanded them be separate. This was the time of the Mosaic law. They're about to charge. They want to see a victory, but God said, stop, there's something not done. I like this quote from Don Anderson, it says this, the times when we are most eager to act is when we make the most pitiful mistakes. How many of us in our eagerness to act have made pitiful mistakes? Financially, with our mouth, How many of us have been eager to have a response and we've made terrible mistakes that have divided family members even to this day? How many of us in our eagerness to act weren't right in our hearts and we made pitiful mistakes? You know, isn't it interesting? Oftentimes when we pray, we're often praying for God to fix them or fix them or fix this or fix that or fix this. We always want God to fix the circumstance. Is there a chance before he fixes the circumstance, he wants to fix you? I find that to be true in my prayer life. Why? Because he knows I'm eager to see things change. I'm eager to conquer my enemies, but he's eager for me to be right with him. And so the law says, if you wanna see a victory, are you on the Lord's side? Circumcision. If you wanna see you avoid the temptation that you're about to encounter with all the cultures you're going into, make sure you're on the Lord's side and follow through. If you want favor, if you want God's favor in the land, make sure you're on the Lord's side. I wrote, what do I need to cut away in order to see a victory? What would God want me to cut away? But, but that's the first one, the law. There's a second one. I, I, I want to call it reproach. What? Yeah, yeah, reproach. It's another word, young people. It's another word for shame or the shame of Israel or the reproach of Israel. What, what do you think this is? Let, let, let's read. It's, it's continuing our text. It says this. Now, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained there in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now, scripture doesn't know how long this took. I'm sure there was a lot of moaning and groaning for a few days. Oh, oh, oh all right. You do, you do your own thing right now. I'm just giving you enough. This took a little while to heal from. God has left his people very vulnerable in enemy territory. It's interesting how little God cares about momentum. If you're in the business world, you'll hear about momentum and seizing opportunities and stuff. God cares far more about whether hearts are right because he's already won any victory. He's not concerned about that. We're the ones who like to strike when the iron's hot. We're the ones who like, but often our most pitiful mistakes are made when we try to get out in front of God. I wanna ask myself before every big decision, is my heart right? Because it took them a little time after getting their heart right to be ready. And the Lord said to Joshua, today, you know what I did? Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Do you know what the word Gilgal means? You do a little research in the Hebrew. Gilgal means to roll away. 
Isn't that interesting? I'm thinking of somebody else who rolls sin away. Can you remember a, a, a stone that got rolled away? I think it was on Easter. Isn't that great to see types of Jesus Christ even in the Old Testament? This Gilgal means to roll away and they do this to get rid of their shame of being enslaved in Egypt, of being mocked in Egypt, of being beaten around in Egypt because of the bondage of their sin. Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Why was it so important? Why was it so important? Why was circumcision this, this thing that God demanded? Because circumcision was a token that they were on his side. Gibeath, Araloth, literally means hill of foreskins. Oh, that's a picture. Thank you for coming to church today. Now think, over a million some Israelites, maybe a quarter of a million were men and soldiers. So we got a quarter of a million foreskins on that hill. Oh man, this is an imagery. God is into imagery. He had them set up the stones and now he's got this hill of foreskins to say, you remember that you said you were on my side. You remember this. For you to walk into the promised land, having gone 40 years without circumcising your children like the Mosaic law told you, that's a slap in the face to me when I've told you this and God provided despite the fact they hadn't circumcised their children. Was it because they were like, you know what, God? If we're gonna walk around for 40 years, well, then you can forget yourself. I'm sick of this God who's letting us walk around. Was it possibly their anger towards him? Was it their frustration that he didn't deliver for them? I was asking you, God, to do this and you didn't do it. And in their rebellion, possibly, they refused to circumcise their children or was it their apathy? Or or was it their complete disregard? But now God delivers anyway, despite their rebellion. Has he ever done that for you? Has God ever delivered for you despite the fact you were rebelling? Has God ever delivered for you despite your complaining spirit? Has God ever delivered for you despite the way you treated somebody at work? Has God ever delivered for you anyway? We forget those moments, don't we? God lets them cross the Jordan River uncircumcised. But when they get into the promised land, he goes, I want the token. Lies. See, when you start to begin to realize that sin isn't this thing where God's going, I'm here to wreck everybody's fun. That's the world's opinion. That's not God. Young people, I used to grow up in church thinking, okay, I'm trying to have fun. And there's this heavenly being up there going, no, Chris is having fun over here. Hold on. Thus haveth no fun. That, I mean, that, it was kind of like, I'm like, oh my word, I can't do anything. I remember it really goes in. When I started to realize, oh, no, no. When God says, you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. Oh, so you tell me not to do that because I'm going to suffer for it? Oh, yeah. If you live with shame, your life is going to have all the joy robbed from it. If you're living with guilt, you're going to have incredible bondage to what people say and think about you. It's going to be an awful life. I need to roll that away from you. I need to get you at Gilgal. I need to get into your heart because you're going to destroy your life living for the approval of men. You're going to destroy your life getting the world to think you're okay. You're going to destroy your life. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. But on top of that, 
It's not a phrase that's original to our church, but when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself, right? And, and so when he wants and wants you to do something, it's gonna hurt you if you continue to do it. And he wants to roll it away, but make no mistake. Sin and rebellion towards God is a slap in his face. What would tokens be that could illustrate this kind of thing? Well, imagine if a, if a husband was sleeping around on his wife and took off his ring and was living in the house with her while he was doing it. What a slap in the face to her. She'd see him leave, watch him take off his ring. That token was a sign of his love and faithfulness. And right in my face, I mean, right in my face, these people crossed the Jordan River right in God's face and he's saying, put it on. You wanna see a victory at Jericho, put it on. But I've been unfaithful, do it a second time because I'm the God of second chances. Oh, even in the Old Testament, we see how good God is to his people. And despite their unfaithfulness of 40 years and total disregard to his law, he says, today I've rolled away the shame. Why? Because you obeyed. God is always ready for us to come back. He's always ready for us to turn around. But there's a third and final reason. It's the covenant. What? Yeah, he wants to pour blessing on his people and he can't do that if they're not circumcised and walking right with him. So scripture tells us this. So, so they do this. They fulfill the circumcision. They lay around the camp for a while. And when the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes. Unleavened cakes. Can you imagine what they were like? <gasps> oh, they were used to just flat. If you're like, what's left? Like, they, they weren't getting saltines. They were getting like tasty cakes. Imagine what was I like? Like we read in scripture, like I would do this when I was a youth pastor. I tell the teens, David's like, oh, your word is like honey on my lips. And the kids are like, I don't know, honey. Because we have so many wonderful treats. They were basically eating wheat all the time, just boring foods. And now they have cakes. They're eating the Passover on the 14th day of the month, exactly 40 years after the uh, first Passover when they came out of Egypt. There are no coincidences with God. He is reminding them, I'm renewing you. I'm restoring you. I am rolling away the shame of Egypt so you can enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And part of the blessing is eating of the food of the land. Look at those grapes. <sighs> wow. Wait a minute. But what about the manna? I mean, they had the manna falling from heaven. I mean, it was like snow you could eat. What's going on with that? Scripture tells you. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land. You don't need the manna anymore. You're not in the wilderness. You're in the promised land. Enjoy God's blessing. The manna would come at night and it wouldn't be there until the next day because that was what they were provided for for that day and the man will come, but they don't need that anymore because now they're walking in obedience. And it's an incredible illustration that there will be no Jericho's moments of victory without Gilgal's. Is it possible, child of God, you've been calling on God to have a victory in your life? And you've been calling on God to fix someone or something or some circumstance. And God goes, hold what? I want to fix you. No, no, we want to fix them. 
I wanna fix you. No, no, we need to fix this world. I wanna fix you. No, we need to fix life right now. I wanna fix you. We are so interested in God changing our circumstances. He is so interested instead in circumcising our hearts. I wanna cut away the garbage so that you can live in purity before me. I wanna put a smile back on your face. You haven't smiled in 40 years. I wanna put a skip back to your step. You're walking with your head like this. I wanna bring it back. And I know the reason you're struggling is with shame. And there's not gonna be a Jericho without a Gilgal. The blessing will come from obedience. And they obeyed. And it's crazy. Do you remember what manna is referred to in the New Testament? Who, who said their manna? Do you remember who it was? It was Jesus in John chapter six. He says, I am the living bread come down from heaven. He was the manna that provided. And when they obeyed, the manna ceased. And you know who shows up on the scene? The angel of the Lord. Do you know who this angel of the Lord most likely is? It's called a Christophany in seminary. It is Jesus appearing before he came to earth as a baby. In the Old Testament, it would often appear as the angel of the Lord. And it's called a Christophany because every time an angel of the Lord is referred to and it's worshiped and it allows worship, you know it's God. For angels, even in Revelation, you see this. In our Revelation series, we pointed this out. That angel said, do not worship me. But when the angel of the Lord, he'll receive worship because you have the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ appearing. Because remember, Jesus is infinite. He's eternal. He existed before he came in a manger and he exists still to this day, amen? And he is alive. Alive, and because he's always been alive, he sometimes would show up. And many scholars believe this is one of those times when Joshua was outside Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. You almost got a picture like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? It's like a scene out of Star Wars, young people. I mean, like what? What is this? Joshua's outside Jericho. The men are over there. Oh, oh, ouch, okay? And he's standing outside Jericho. And this comes, I gotta read it to you. And Joshua says this, are you for us or for our adversaries? You know what he says? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Joshua walks up to this guy holding a sword. And he said, no. What? You follow the question? Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. What is this? Is this a politician or is this the Lord? What is this? Stay with me. Look at this. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. But I am the commander of the Lord of the whole, wait a minute. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Hold up. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their sin, a massive angel, a seraphim, part of the cherubim as well, multiple wings, they stood and they covered that gate. In, in, the, in the New Testament, Michael the archangel takes on the devil himself, Michael the massive archangel. These angels are in rank, they're massive angels. And, and all these angels, scripture says they have 
over them a commander, and his name is Yahweh Sabaoth, the battle god, El Gabor. You shall call his name Counselor, Wonderful God, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, in Hebrew, El Gabor, the battle god. Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of angel armies, is standing right in front of Joshua. Be very careful, Joshua. This is not someone who's scared of itty bitty men at all. I'm reading. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to my servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, before I read this, how many of you remember that Joshua grew up as an apprentice of Moses? How many times do you think Moses told him about this time when he was walking through the wilderness into the desert area and there was this bush and behold, it kept burning. How many times did he tell him that story? Now, if you recall, if you've been studying with us in Joshua, that God said, Joshua, I'm gonna be with you like I am with Moses. Now, with all of that, I want you to read this with me, ready? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Joshua got to follow the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan. He's about to follow the commander of the Lord's army around Jericho. It almost seems as if the battle belongs to the Lord. But what I wrote down in my notes is, it seems to me that we're often asking God, are you on my side with this or not? God, are you for us or not? I'm looking around this world, but the answer really might be much more what we just read. It's really not whether God is on our side, it's actually whether we are on his. It's not about us trying to get God to align to what we want, it's about us aligning to what he wants. I want to charge, I want you to smile, to pray, to open the word of God again, to come back to church, to be kind again, to know what it feels to love, feel peace in your heart again, be patient. I want goodness to be in your heart again. I want steadfastness to be a part of your life. I know you want me on your side, but you know what's actually best for you? That you're on mine because you're miserable right now because of shame. And I want grace to penetrate. And as the New Testament tells me, circumcise my heart so that I can be restored. I rolled away the law and their rebellion I rolled away their rebellion by having them follow the law. He rolled away their shame by exposing their reproach. And he rolled away them not receiving favor by restoring the covenant with them. Despite their unfaithfulness, they obeyed 
And guess what? I truly believe if you come back, you'll see a victory. So how do we knock over this wall today? I'm not an Old Testament Israelite, Chris. Okay, I'm not under the law. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law. I read that, I read that. And now I live in the age of grace. And if I'm a child of God, I've received Jesus Christ as my personal savior. I've repented of my sin and I've asked him to be my savior and I follow him now. Yet I still struggle with shame. How do I knock this wall over? Well, first of all, I gotta ask you, who's talking the loudest in your head? What? Is guilt talking the most or is conviction talking the most? Let me rephrase that. Is the enemy talking the most or is the Holy Spirit talking the most in your head? You know that person you talk to all the time, yourself. Is it guilt or is it conviction? How do I know? Well, one of our men's directors, he likes to say, I tell the guys, if it's guilt, that voice will constantly be calling on you to run away from God. Go hide, get out of there, get away. Get as far as you can from him. But if it's conviction, that's the Holy Spirit and it's calling you to run towards God. Come to him, he'll give you rest. What are you listening to? It depends on how you're walking because if you're walking with shame, it's crippling. I mean, you could say to yourself, today I have rolled away the shame of and fill in the blank. I mean, whatever it is, we can go to God and do this if we're listening to the voice of conviction. But the voice of guilt is just gonna lead us into further crippling behavior. There was a woman in 1994, she set out to walk across the world. So she would go to each continent and she'd walk the, those areas. And she did in a bunch of different countries, um, 19,586 miles over an 11 year trek and a hundred pairs of sneakers. She got to the finish line and there were crowds there in Scotland walking her. And she was praised as this woman who walked around the world. But within some one year, reports came out that she didn't want to live anymore and was considering taking her life. And it wasn't until her book came out that people found out that she had lied about a thousand of the miles. She actually rode in a car and she couldn't live with the shame of it. She had to get it off her chest. She had to come clean. She had to get it right. And how do you do that? You confess it. And that confession brought her great freedom. I don't know what her spiritual life is like, but it brought her great freedom. But as a child of God, when we confess our sins, it can restore that joy you may have lost. But remember, there's not gonna be a Jericho without a Gilgal. There's not gonna be a victory unless there's a moment where we roll away the sin with confession. We obey God and see sin as he sees it. We say, Chris, I, I wanna do, how do I do that? Well, I would suggest a Gilgal prayer. You say, what? I, I brand everything because I have a terrible memory. Anybody like me? I brand everything. So I have a terrible memory. So I go, oh, Gilgal prayer. I need it in the moment. A time where I roll away sin and come clean with God. Psalm 51 has been an anchor for that. I have in my, in my journal, some of you know I, I love the journal. I really do. I even like journal Bibles where I can journal in the Bible, okay? And, and, and 
Psalm 51 has five steps you could take. Oh no, oh no, a five step church. Well, hold up. This is straight from scripture. These are his, not mine. It's written by a man who has just had an affair. He slept with a woman he saw bathing naked. He saw her, he wanted her, he took her. And then when he was afraid he was gonna get caught, he killed her husband or had him killed by sending him out in the front lines. I mean, he was a guy that God would hate, right? Like David, a man after God's own heart. He wrote this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. First thing of a Gilgal prayer, request mercy. Ask God for a clean heart. How many of us are praying prayers to God to fix everybody else? When's the last time you said, God, I'm requesting a clean heart. I want a clean heart. Have mercy on me cleanse me. He offers a second one. It's reveal. Yeah, it's, it's Chris, so you know it's R.E.'s, so just stay with me. For I know my transgressions, he says, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Reveal the guilt. Tell him what you did. It's not like he doesn't know. David's saying, I go to work. I'm thinking about what I did wrong. I'm driving a car. We know David didn't. I'm applying it to you. I'm thinking about what I did wrong. I can't go anywhere without thinking about what I've done. Reveal it to him. He knows it anyway. And then he says this, isn't it interesting? Against you only I have sinned. I have offended you, God, and I'm revealing that today. This is a Gilgal prayer. This is a rolling away of shame. That's what David's doing. Third, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Oh, I'd love a whole sermon on just the secret heart, but let me just say this. He's repenting. What does the word mean? To agree with God that what is being done is wrong. He is agreeing with God that you want purity in the secret heart. When's the last time in your prayer life, instead of you trying to fix the circumstance, you ask God to say, purify me in the secret place where I'm hiding stuff. I'm bringing it into light. Four, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God. And here's a word, and renew a right spirit within me. Renew me. Cut away, blot out, create again, renew a right heart. We're so busy asking God to fix everyone else. When's the last time you said in your prayer life, would you renew a right spirit in me? You know, only the Holy Spirit can renew. And so I would encourage you, Holy Spirit, would you renew a right spirit in me? Would you renew my thinking in that area towards them, towards this, towards that? And then finally, restore. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God, restore me. Remember me, God, when I was 18 and I came to Christ at camp. Remember that guy? Oh my word, 
to go back to that moment and be on fire for the word of God like that. God, remember that time I was a girl and I called on your name and I was helping it. I was doing this and God, I just want to go back to that. And the enemy goes, you can't. You're filthy and dirty and disgusting. Stop listening to this Bible. After all, it's all here to ruin your life and keep you from doing fun things. And every once in a while, you hear the Holy Spirit go in, stop listening to that voice. That's a voice of shame and guilt. Conviction. Conviction makes us request a clean heart. Reveal the guilty heart to God. Repent the secret heart. Renew the right heart and restore the joyful heart. And did you know, scripture tells you, child of God, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If, instead of hiding, instead of excusing it, instead of denying it, if we confess it, the word comes from an original word in the Greek, because it's the New Testament, right? That means to speak and to say the same thing. So in other words, it is to say the same thing about what's been going on that you're ashamed of to God. It's wrong and I need to come clean with it. And there comes a double blessing, this verse says. He forgives you of your sins. The word is transgressions. It's your rebellion. And he cleanses you from unrighteousness. The word speaks to the pollution that sin can bring and can bog us down. Kind of like anxiety takes a toll on the body. Sin takes a toll on the body. And he cleanses us and forgives us. And the enemy doesn't want you to know this because he wants you all walking around in complete shame. And so when somebody points out something that might be wrong about you, you go, don't tell me, don't judge me. When it's really just, you know it's there. And if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit's going, let's deal with it. And this is why you wanna be a child of God if you haven't come to the decision to know Christ as your savior because you're given the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And one little girl said one time, but have internal life. And you know what? She's not that wrong because God wants to work on that heart so that you might have eternal life. And oftentimes that comes with dealing what's going on internally. The enemy comes to me sometimes, I don't know about you, and he'll say things, remember what you did? You're gonna do pay for that one day. You remember that? What about that? You did that. And see, I got, see, when I came to know Christ my Savior, there's a house built for me in heaven. And just figuratively speaking, I like to check the walls of that house because there's a few posters up on that house that God's reserved for me in heaven. I got a key to it. I got a title deed. I'm a child of God who's got an inheritance coming. And so I tell the devil, could you come here? I got this hallway. You keep bringing up the sin of my past. Could you come here? Come here. I put this poster up here. I call it the sea of forgetfulness. What? Yeah, come here, devil. I want you to look at this. He will again have compassion on me and he will subdue my iniquities. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Devil, here's what Jesus did with my sin the moment I got forgiveness. He took it and he went like this. You can watch. And so you can keep bringing it up, but he doesn't. Child of God, you can keep bringing it up. And how many times is Jesus going, I wonder how long, I wonder how long they're gonna let shame enslave them because I'm not bringing it up. They confessed it. 
<laughs> and, then, and then we saw this quote. The times when we are most eager to act is when we make the most pitiful mistakes. And people can sit in church and I'm trying to encourage them, but the voice of shame comes on them and go, you made pitiful mistakes. That's why your children are the way they are. That's why your marriage is the way you are. You make pitiful mistakes. That's why your finances are the way you are. That's what the enemy wants to do, just shame and guilt you and says you're pitiful and you make mistakes and you're awful and you're guilty. He just pounds home, you're guilty, but listen to the voice of this Holy Spirit and he'll say, hey, check the wall. What? Yeah, come here, devil. I, I put up another sign. What? Yeah, yeah, it's called the note of dismissal. We just go into the courtroom and I read this verse in Romans 8, 1, for there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. So, so enemy, you're trying to tell me I'm guilty, but see, I've got this little paper here and it's got my name on it. I ask Christ for forgiveness. It's got my name on it. It says, Chris Heller. And, and I want you to read this because it says all charges dropped. Who needs that today? All charges dropped. Well, so-and-so wouldn't say all charges dropped. You give an account to your heavenly father. And if you're a child of God who's asked for forgiveness, you're forgiven. All charges dropped. It's not about whether God is on our side. It's whether we are on his you see, with forgiveness, there's two aspects of it. I'm throwing a lot of theology into one sermon, okay? So stay with me. There's positional forgiveness and there's relational forgiveness. Positional forgiveness speaks to the moment of salvation. I'm a child of God. I'm adopted, I'm his. I go to my kids' sports games and I look at their jerseys and on the back it says Heller. Why? Because they're my children, positionally. Do they do things sometimes that are an act of rebellion towards me or towards mom? Sure. And so there's relational damage, but not positional damage. They're my child no matter what. And so sometimes we have relational damage that's been done. In fact, husbands, did you know our sins can, can even hinder our prayer life, Peter tells us. So we want to get right positionally and make sure we're coming to him with confession so he's, we're reminded we're on his side and the enemy says, he doesn't want you back. The enemy says, don't go back to church. The enemy says, don't you do that. They hate you. You're not welcome. You're worthless. You're set apart. You're not able to do this. You're nothing. You're a betrayer. You're a failure. You're not welcome with God. And, and then I, I say, enemy, come here because I'm feeling that. I've even got people posting comments about me like that online. So come here, I wanna show you something. Uh, enemy, could you look at this? It says, I have a seat at the table. In him, we have the redemption through his blood. That's a big word, redemption, which means to buy back, to pay for. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I get to eat at his table. I get to eat from the food of his land. Once an enemy, now seated at the table. Hold on, let me ask. Jesus, can I come in? Come on in, Chris. We got a seat for you. Have a good day, devil. You're not worthy. I know, but he is. And he paid for my seat. Jesus, how much you pay for my seat? Oh, it was costly. How costly? Uh, Chris, it costed me my life. That's an expensive seat. I'm going to eat. Come on in. See, the enemy can't win this game when you are know who you are as a child of God. And that's why there can be no Jericho without a Gilgal. 
and he's going to pound home, you're dirty, you're disgusting. You say, come here, enemy. I've got this map on the wall. I got this map on the wall of my house in heaven. And it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed my transgressions from me. He is a map of removal. Go look at it. Go try to find my sins. Jesus says, come here, I'll show you. I've removed him as far as the east is from the west. And that don't speak until you realize he didn't say north to south. See, because north there's a pole and south there's a pole. There's no pole east to west. His forgiveness of me is eternal. It goes on and on. Chris, how long are you going to let shame ruin your life? I've forgiven you. But these voices keep pounding at home. You need to take them to your posters. I know that's why I made them and put them in my journal so I can review them. Because there's days I don't always feel that way, but my feelings aren't truth. And the moment I received Christ as my savior, I have to remember that was the day he rolled away the reproach of my former life. This past week, we had some kids come to know Christ as their savior. And in heaven, it was said, today I've rolled away the reproach of Kaylee, Alexandria, Leah, Elena, Christian, Parker, Callie, just to name a few, rolled it away. And the greatest thing each one of those kids could learn is the power of what his forgiveness gives us. And in order to walk in victory again. Next week, we're walking up to Jericho. And I pray we will knock some walls down. Because of our own strength? No, because the Lord's going for us. Who? Jesus. Colossians 2, 11 says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made not with hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and power of working of God who raised him from the dead, who rolled it away, if you will. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus who said enough of the shame game. Those are my kids. I define them. I say who they are. I paid a dear price for them. I shed blood for them. I know they're not perfect. In fact, I'm very aware they were made from dust. But I have offered them my forgiveness. And I know Jesus might want to say to the child of God who has asked Jesus Christ as their savior, how long are you gonna let shame destroy your joy? How long? Just come confess it. Talk to me. Against you I have sinned, David tells me. And if I get right, I can experience the joy of that relationship. And thank you, God, for forgiving me despite me doing that. But may I still desire a closeness with you. Oh, I think it'd be a great prayer for all of us. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name.
Amen.